Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, the PK Podcast is a weekly conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights in the promotional products business. If you just tuned in and you caught us laughing, it's because we can't stop laughing at my friend and co-host, Mark Graham, president of Right Sleeve, CEO of Common Skew, and uh, I, I, I had a tiny pause there for him to interrupt, and he didn't do it, so I'm going to keep talking. Here we go. Mark, what we're doing today... One of the things we've always wanted to do with PK Podcast is to turn it into a conversation that you might have stumbled upon in a restaurant or sitting at the bar, having rich dialogue about anything that impacts our, our industry. And when the three of us and pretty much anybody that's involved in Promo Kitchen, it would be at the community or the folks in the chef, get, get around and start talking. We just There's so many topics that we want to discuss that we could go all over the, all over the place. And just before... We hit the record button here. We were talking about different things that we could help, that would be help, that we could discuss, that would be helpful to the audience. And uh, what we're starting with today, Roger Burnett is our is our guest, and Roger is uh, one of those super sharp chefs. You've seen some of his articles on the Promo Kitchen blog, and he's the national director of promotional marketing for Workflow One. Roger, are you guys running what approximately ninety million? Ninety-one million as of the Counselor Awards in. Early May. Don't let us rob you of that one million. Ninety-one <laughs> million, and uh, many of us are curious, including Mark and I, about some of the, you know, the the what happens at that level. What are some of the things you're dealing with, struggling with, and how you guys are growing sales and looking toward two thousand, the rest of two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. But we're continuing a series on the distributors' DNA, and if there's any anyone that we really want to sit down and have conversations with, it's typically those distributors that have made this leap to where you guys are in terms of volume and revenue. It's such a different animal than the rest of our, us are used to. Um, Roger, what's a day in the life look like for you? Oh, my. Planes and trains and <laughs> automobiles and waking up and not knowing what city I'm in and booking stuff for the end of July already. It's crazy. My family only knows I live there by the fact that my clothes get moved around periodically. <laughs> and, and, and you have nice hotel room views too, Roger, from the from the looks of it on Facebook. Much better. Today's than is particularly it. nice, but it's not always that that way, unfortunately. <laughs> right, right. Now, Where are you today? I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, good stuff. Now, I'd like to clarify: ninety-one million is only the promotional sales of uh, Workflow One, isn't that right, Roger? Yeah, we were just north of five hundred million for last year in total sales. So we were about twenty percent of the overall revenue of the company. If I recall, the last time we talked, um, a large part of what you were trying to do was get more of your existing clients to to adopt and increase their sales and and promotional products. And uh, you recently brought on another chef uh, from the Promo Kitchen community, uh, Jonathan Irvin. Um, what's Jonathan doing for you? Jonathan is making it so that at least if I'm traveling to cities that I can't remember, they are in the same time zone or at least only one time zone away. <laughs> John's uh, done a great job of taking responsibility for our West Coast operation and has really seized the bull by the horns and is off making it happen for himself out west. Now, before we got uh, hit the record button, I thought Mark had asked an insightful question uh, about uh, developing salespeople versus developing sales. Sounds like you guys spend a lot of your time developing salespeople and growing salespeople. Can you tell us a little bit about that process, what it's like? Yeah, you know, Bobby, I would tell you that 
in the years that I've spent in these kinds of roles where I'm not necessarily uh, the direct customer-facing contact for a client, but more of a um, channel manager, if you will, responsibility for a portion of the overall story that Workflow One can tell a client. Uh, what we've really found is we've got to put those salespeople in a position to be able to manage that relationship specific to this line of business while our uh, organization internally that's tasked with taking care of those items that are specific to promotional products can get the work done in the background, but not to, to, to create a scenario where the client doesn't feel like they've got a single point of contact. So we invest really heavily in them, but the, what, what I would tell you um, that I've learned over time is salespeople don't learn well in a classroom. They learn well in the field. Except for in Bob's classrooms. Professorial nature of, of Bobby <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, what we tell people all the time is the learning is in the doing. And if you think about it, if you've gotten an, if you have an opportunity and something goes right, you're going to go find five more chances to do that again. And if you get an opportunity and something goes wrong. Generally speaking, good salespeople will sort of huddle up and try to decide what caused that thing to go wrong that cost them the sale and try to make sure that that doesn't ever happen again. So, you know, there's really no replacement for that in the field training that we can give them. And the fortunate part and the story that we tell most frequently um, about our organization is Workflow's got about 2,000 clients. And we, we've penetrated just about 10% of them. So we still got, you know, 90% of our install base or, uh, you know, our, our client base to go pursue this line of business with just by the very nature of the fact that people these days are looking to do more work with the people that they already trust. And if they're having a difficulty uh, in the promotional product space, then in many instances by the nature of our existing relationships and the other things that we're doing for the client, Promotional products is a nice transition for them to want to come seek our help in that regard as well. Roger, in in the just before we started recording, uh, we were talking uh, about this idea of uh, growing sales versus salespeople, as we were just talking about. But you you'd made a comment that um, sales executives or sales managers that come in and pursue those business development opportunities. Um, at the expense of growing and investing salespeople is ultimately a doomed strategy that will only pay off in the short term, but not in the mid to long term. Can you extrapolate on that and talk a little bit more about what you mean? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you're dealing in the arena that we're most frequently dealing with, so, you know, we're generally talking about um, in, in those instances where my part of the organization is getting involved, I mean, we're, we're usually looking at a half million dollar opportunity or larger. Okay. So, so consequently, the stakes are pretty high because even at 500 million in sales, a $5 million net new contract to the organization is a, is a massive win for us. So in our pursuit of those opportunities, what we've clearly come to understand is in those instances where we've not done a good job of empowering the salesperson to really have a strong understanding of what's going on, generally speaking, that customer relationship will, will suffer in the short term. 
So we, uh, well, maybe not necessarily in the short term, definitely in the medium term and, you know, however you quantify from medium to long term. But eventually, you know, this is a relationship that will be on a slippery slope towards losing it if you don't have somebody strong, you know, standing there being the customer facing uh, part of your business. So in the classic example of not replicating your failures, uh, we've worked really hard to make sure that we bring an account team that includes more than just the account executive, Mark. I mean, we're talking about in many instances, you know, there's going to be an account team of people who are going to be responsible for that relationship of that size. Right. We've got to make sure not only do they have a good, good handle on what their responsibilities are within the account team, but what the needs of the client are going to be and how we're going to structure ourselves to meet those needs. Because let me tell you something, $5 million in revenue, $4 million, $2 million, whatever, um, that number turns out to be the amount of activity that's generated by the just the sheer quantity of those dollars is just enormous. Right, right. Are you, uh, Roger, are you are you able to quantify what percentage of your your business is program business versus what I would call classically dropship business? Well, you know, and I'm sure you guys have struggled with this notion as well. You know, there's there's schools of thought that say you got to get the program business in order to get yourself into the dropship opportunities. But you know, we really aspire to the theory of it's much better to know the client on a transactional basis before we go and pursue the program, yeah. Um, only because you just have a better opportunity for success long term if you've established a transactional relationship with the client in a way that you not only understand their logo and all of the requirements that go along with um, you know, managing that logo for them, but really the manner in which they source product, you know, are they last minute Charlie as we are all frequently subject to from our clients or do we have the opportunity to introduce some things to them that might allow us the opportunity to have a more uh, beneficial relationship and keep us out of that? Everything's got to be a rush scenario. Yeah, that's wise advice uh, because I know many people who will, will try and win program business in order to get dropship, and that's almost, not quite, but almost always uh, a really bad way uh, to try and get that dropship because you typically give up way too much uh, on the operating side of things and you just lose margin and it just gets ugly. So hats off to you. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny in our, in our value proposition, we have a discussion that talks about the very disparate needs of the two buying communities um, that you're talking about when it comes to how an organization will conduct its business. You know, the folks in purchasing where a printing company like yeah. Workflow One really has a number of our relationships, you know, their needs are drastically different than the people who are actually buying the product. And if you've scaled yourself to be organizationally superior for to meet the needs for the purchasing folks, that's not going to keep you in the business of the dropship because right. you have to have a personal relationship and really understand the buying needs of those people who are buying that dropship business or else you'll just never get it. Great point. Right. Uh, Roger, all, all this discussion around these big fish clients, like the $5 million clients, um, remind me of this uh, Promo Kitchen post you wrote a couple of weeks ago, this rant-style post around Facebook and, and GM. And one of the points that you made in the article was that there are clients, bigger clients like a GM 
that uh, will throw their weight around and 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 don't come across as being particularly nice to work with simply because they're large and they're established big fortune 500 businesses now i'm not trying to suggest that we're painting all of these big clients with the same general brush but i'm interested in your approach as a sales guy sales leader on what it's like to deal with some of these really large accounts and some of the things that they can throw your way and what really defines a successful client relationship at that size um, so you don't end up losing your shirt or you don't end up getting bullied or you don't end up getting into bed with just a plain awful company that's run by a purchasing department that doesn't respect what you do. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, Mark, uh, someone accused me of having cayenne in my cornflakes the day I wrote that Facebook post. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it definitely was a step out for me uh, in, you know, in, in comparison to some of the other content that I've generated. But, um, you know, I feel real passionately about things like what we witnessed in in that post. You know, I mean, here they were on the precipice of you know, being the the darlings of Wall Street, and one of their major partners decides to slap them upside the head publicly. You know, in the days leading up to it, just just not good partnership stuff. And it, and it really, as you could tell by my post, it fires me up when I see stuff like that go on. And yep. you know, it's interesting, Mark, because I'm thinking um, one of the next things that I want to put out there for public consumption is this notion of the ability to be and the strength of uh, character to be able to say no. And when you get into, um, you know, th think about an opportunity that you're working on within the context of the value of that opportunity w within the, the um, totality of your pipeline. So if I'm managing a $1 million opportunity and I only have a $1.5 million pipeline and I lose that million bucks, that's a bad day for me. Right. But if I have a $25 million pipeline, then that million bucks doesn't hurt so bad. So the the I would say that while the numbers are more extravagant, you know, this is the same discussion about why Michael Jordan can drop fifty thousand dollars on a bet on a golf game. You know, he's got more money, the stakes are the same. So we within workflow and myself personally in the last eighteen months have been just later focused on saying no. Um, as a matter of fact, there's an opportunity right now that we are preparing to tell the client that it's not a fit for us because we've done such a good job now of understanding exactly where our opportunities for success are. Right. Part of that has much to do with who the people are on the other side of the transaction yeah. and what we can expect from them. And that's really in many instances, regardless of the size of the organization. I mean, the three of us have had this chat over beers. I'm not afraid anymore to tell somebody that their business isn't meant for me. Right. That's yeah. it's tough to do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially when I'm dealing with as diverse of a sales population as I'm dealing with when you have 230 people, I'm going to tell you that never in any selling organization does 100% of the sales force have a very robust pipeline. So when one of those million dollar opportunities happens to fall into the lap of a guy who's only got a million and a half pipeline 
and I'm telling him no. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine what kind of organizational chaos that that can create. <laughs> I was about to ask right. that. Roger, how else do you assess these situations? What else do you apply when you're looking at something like this about what's a good opportunity and what's a bad opportunity? Or, or bad opportunities are oxymoron. What's a good opportunity and then what's just bad? Yes. So, you know, and, and here we are happening on a topic that if, if I were back to my, you know, sole proprietor days, the thing that I used that came from my time working for a big company was, you know, to develop a checklist for yourself that you believe in your heart are the precursors for you being successful with respect to your relationship with the potential client. And if you can't have at least 50% of those uh, boxes checked on the checklist, you either need to do some more work or you need to stop pursuing that opportunity. Um, and you know, that's okay. There's going to be people that, that you're going to be um, calling on that just aren't not going to feel it and aren't going to want to go where you want to take them. That's fine. The other thing that we try to impress upon our clients in our discovery process is I've got this continuum that I like to reference that, you know, on the, on the far end of the continuum is somebody who just wants to buy a pen and they don't really want anything other than you to get a quote for pens. And on the other end of the continuum is a client who literally wants you to change the way they do business. Right. And if you can't identify where that client is on that continuum, you could very easily run the risk of you know trying to change somebody's world when they just want to buy something from you. Yeah. And we would tell you, I want people all along the continuum because I still have to sell pens or mugs or water bottles or whatever it is that we happen to be selling in the commodity space in order for us to keep the engine running and develop solutions for people who really want their world to be changed. Right. That's great advice. It always, it's always easier emotionally to if you have more in the pipeline, if you just have that opportunity and uh, it's really hard. It gets harder emotionally to say no, but the, the, the real secret emotionally is, is to just try and keep the pipeline full of opportunities. But all three of us know. I mean, if you were to, to look at whatever accounts you're working on right now and somebody puts you in an uncomfortable position of only having to um, count on those ones that you really thought you could make happen, think about how much of what's really in there would just go away. Right. Yeah. Uh, Roger, I want to switch gears slightly, and I want to talk about something that we have addressed in past podcasts, specifically the question of e-commerce and the role it's going to play in our industry over the next three to five years. And the reason I'm asking you this question is that workflow one is not what uh, I think most people would uh, associate with being at the forefront of the e-commerce revolution if let's say you compare them to an inkhead or a, or a four imprint. And I don't mean that in a bad way by any stretch because clearly you've been able to generate massive sales by selling in a, um, in, 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 in a non-e-commerce way. So my question to you is, if you look in your crystal ball in the next three to five years, do you see your business evolving along the same lines it is, as it is right now, which is you're certainly technology enabled, but it's not the, the leader in your sales pitch. Um, or do you see uh, a massive transformation where e-commerce starts to play a much significant role? Well, boom, there you go. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, Hot seat. Absolutely, we will be 
massively different 18 months from now. Not, I mean, I, three years is too long. I mean, everything that we're in the midst of now is intended to pay us benefits, some of those even as early as yet here in 2012. So hmm. the, I guess what I would tell you, Mark, is our e-commerce platform and the, the methodology by which we use to market to our existing clients through our e-commerce platform, e platform is about to be completely blown up and done in such a dramatically different way that no one in our client base will recognize us six months from now. And, you know, we talk about so many times the value of a client and, you know, what it could mean to you in, in sales and in profit and, you know, in sustaining your business for the long term. And sometimes I think even all of us, you know, as marketers, as we claim to be in this space with things that are intended to be marketing materials, I think sometimes we maybe give short shrift to how else might we be marketing to people who already want us to market them as opposed to be to always running around looking for that new client. Right. And I would tell you that all of the things that that are going on um, are intended for our clients to see us more as an informer, if that's the right word, someone that they could come to as a trusted advisor passively in the way that they want to be communicated with, right. which really starts to bring in all of the, the you know, e-commerce tools and social platforms that are available to us. But you know, as we, as an industry, have sat around scratching our heads a bit about how that might get done, we're using the resources of a $91 million company to be able to bring some of those to bear. So right. we're probably right. not as nimble. It takes us longer to move, but we've got the resources to put behind it once we decide that that's what we want to do. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think uh, kudos to Mark. I think he just scooped something there. That was pretty good. So Roger, I have a question for you on you, earlier. We were talking about, um, sort of creative content and and content marketing. What are you doing right now and what are you trying to do in the near future to change your current your content marketing plan? Yeah, you know, this goes back to specialization way back when we had our first uh, podcast discussion when we were talking about when you find a success, find an opportunity to replicate it. So in keeping with that same thought process, we've gone so far now as to identify our vertical markets, which is not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, any any uh, distributor of this size is really trying to focus on specific markets. We've identified those, but we've gone so far now as to subdivide those markets into the buying communities that we've identified as being the people who most frequently buy what we're trying to sell in, in those vertical markets. And we really want to have them see us as the place to come to for answers around the problems that they have with their job. You know, and really where we've got a leg up is when you look at the logos that are in our portfolio, you know, we're protecting some of the most prestigious brands in the country. And consequently, we hear a fair amount from those clients in those places about what their problems are. And we've done a really good job of listening, aggregating, and then now scouring um, the social platforms, the web as a whole, and then in some instances even creating unique content on our own 
that's intended specifically to inform those people about how what we do, not necessarily work for one, but promotional products and brand and merchandise in general can help solve some of those problems. And I think, you know, invariably along the way, we'll gain credibility points with those buyers because they'll be able to find us when they're searching for answers as opposed to us constantly trying to sell them something. Well, uh, Roger, on that, um, when you talk about creative content, what are some of the things that you got, like some specific things that Workflow is doing to generate creative content and how is it paying off? Um, is that, does that typically fall to the marketing department? Does it fall to the account people? Is, is, I, I'm always curious around how content gets produced and executed at the distributor level when it relates to creative content. <laughs> well, and especially when you're talking about, right, um, 230 salespeople got 2,000 employees. And yeah. the way I look at it is the biggest challenge we've got with a, with a prospect, somebody who doesn't know us from Adam is because the marketplace is so dominated by people who are not $91 million, in many instances, the subconscious of the person who's sitting listening to us really is asking themselves the question, are we big enough to matter to them? And what we want them to understand is while we're $91 million or whatever it is, and we're however many employees, we're just a group of people that are just like everybody else. And I think content has a way of humanizing a company of our size to the point where if we can allow our community of potential content creators to feel like they have a voice and an outlet for that content, I could really care what the brand comes from in reality because there's going to be something that that person in the billing department or credit and collections is going to know that could be a benefit to somebody who's doing the same job function on the client side and they may never interact with one another in the absence of that content engine. So, you know, we're aggressively pursuing the entire company having the opportunity to create content. Now, consequently, then you've got to curate it. And we all know from our collective experience with Promo Kitchen what the difficulties are about trying to curate and post comment when everybody else is off doing their specific job functions. Right. So um, you're going to see here pretty quick, I would say there's a certain trade show in July coming up that you're really going to start to see where our engine starts to take off if you're paying attention to what we're doing while we're there. And the related content that will come out of it as a result, I think, will be something that everybody will be really interested to see. Cool. Very good. Yeah, so it's it's much closer, you know, when you said three to five years. I mean, I'm thinking three to five minutes here. <laughs> <laughs> you were serious the first time we talked. You were serious. You were like, "We are, we are changing some things." So that's pretty cool. Um, it's, it's going to be exciting to see all, all those changes take place. Uh, we are getting close to running out of time. Uh, is there any other? We don't have to quit right now. But is there any other topic that you guys wanted to address while we're here? Oh, what do we want to talk about? There's always so much to talk about, Roger Burnett. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> 
And the sales, <laughs> the sales part, I mean, we, this is why this is just an ongoing conversation. It's why it's nice to fire up the mic and talk about various things. Uh, I think every time we visit, I think we open up some other subtopic that we have to review later. What will be fun, Roger, is down the road in the fall. Um, we will look back, sounds like in the fall, later part of the year, we can look back and see some of the things you've kind of hinted at in this podcast and maybe discuss them at that time, too. It'd be exciting to watch that unfold. Well, we could probably uh, also do it at the same time as um, as you, Bobby, go through your uh, changes that you've been implementing over the yeah. last little while, specifically around e-commerce. So right. it could be it could be an interesting thing. I think all of us on this call have had interesting things in the works as it relates to our business models since since January and I think that the fall will represent an interesting time for each of us. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I think all, all three of us there's some pretty big initiatives um uh, uh in each of our brands going on. So this will be fun to circle back around. Roger, anything else you want to mention before we close? Yeah, I I just wanted to I meant to write something about it and we never did, but you know, Bobby, uh Mark, I really wanted to thank you guys for keeping the engine going on PK. You know, we really um, were blessed to have had the opportunity to bring Jonathan onto the team. And as is reflective of the community, when you've got a group of people who are willing to really share and really sort of let each other have a look at what goes on behind the curtain, if you will, you know, it, it gives everybody that head start of not necessarily having to worry about if we're coming at something from the same place. I mean, the, the community has really brought together what I think is a lot of like-minded individuals that are looking to, to shake the game up. And when I can be fortunate enough to bring somebody of Jonathan talent, Jonathan talent onto my team, you know, that just makes workflow that, that much better. So, you know, kudos to, to all and let's keep her going. That's pretty cool. And on this topic, if you are listening to this podcast right now and you want to get involved in a bigger way, give us a shout. We would love to have an article from you um, or, or to be on the podcast someday. Um, this is a community, and we get our ideas from each other. That's the coolest part about this. And uh, kudos to you, Roger, for Jonathan, and and uh, sounds like you guys got some great things going on. Mark, any final comments? No comments other than uh, it. Roger, it's always awesome having you on the call. You're always uh, one to, I think, rip the scab off things, and and uh, and you do it with such, such grace. So, <laughs> there you go. That's enough of my BS. He's I'm he's just, he's <laughs> willing. The funny part about Roger, he's willing to do it. He, he's the guy that yeah, he'll 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 make it happen. <laughs> like his article, the yeah. last article he wrote. If you guys don't know, we're talking about Go Comb the PK site. It's it's a great article. Well, um, thanks again, folks, for tuning in, and this has been a great conversation. Mark, Roger, I wish you guys both the best, and we will chat again very soon. You got it. Thank you, Jen. Thanks, guys.